May is the month of hope and expectation. For many in the world, spring is waning and summer's in view. Dreams of vacations and backyard barbecues, lakes and pools, mountains and beaches, long days and warm nights. But May is also the middle of the Everest climbing season. The summit of Everest is 29,029 feet above sea level. We use sea level as a baseline because it's something we can all understand that it's the place where land emerges from the ocean's surface. But is sea level actually the most accurate way to measure elevation? The deepest part of the ocean is the Mariana Trench. The bottom of that ocean valley is 36,229 feet. In reality, this is the actual base of the crust of the earth. The deepest part of the ocean is the Mariana Trench. The bottom of that ocean valley is 36,229 feet. If the oceans were to magically dry up, how, how would we measure the elevation of the Earth's land masses? And would elevation even be a relevant measurement? Does it really matter how high or how deep something is? Life is experienced at the moment, and in that spot you're standing on. Every other thought or feeling you have about elevation and its meeting are irrelevant at that moment. Without the oceans and the surface of those oceans being our benchmark for elevation, would the absolute base of the mountains be at the bottom of the Mariana Trench? What would the terrain that is submerged look like? Is it walkable? Climbable? I think most of the world's mountains would remain unclimbed, and by unclimbed, I mean never summited. I think we can all believe that there would certainly be people who would be excited to try. If we took this fantastical view, Mount Everest would stand 65,229 feet high, if measured from the bottom of the Mariana Trench. That's over 12 miles above the absolute base of the Earth's crust. Everest sits about 3,500 miles from the Mariana Trench. In geographical terms, that's the same neighborhood, and the connection from the bottom of the Earth's surface to the top of the Earth's surface are clearly connected. May 10th is as good a day to stand on the summit of Everest as any other. On one particular May 10th, that's exactly what a team of climbers had planned. Plans in the big mountains of the world are just that. They're plants. They're more ideas than absolutes. Nothing is a given in Everest travel. Not comfort, not success, not even life itself. Nothing can be taken for granted when moving through terrain that's killed more than 300 people. If you choose the same route, you'd pass approximately 200 of those bodies on your way to the summit. If you make it that far. So on one particular May 10th, with clear skies and a clear vision for success, a team set out for their summit attempt. It was busy on the mountain and crowded. Crowded seems like a strange word to use about one of the most unforgiving places on earth, but crowds do arrive for their chance at fame or infamy, and those crowds can present a problem. This was not new, and the leader of the team was experienced and was well aware of every situation that could hamper their success. He'd summited Everest an amazing five times and was sure he could, with his experience, mitigate any obstacle, whether it be geographical, physical, or even mental. There's a strategy these days on Everest that has become standard when attempting to reach the summit. There is, in fact, a magic number, and that magic number is two. Two is in 2 p.m., 
If you reach the summit by 2 p.m., there's enough time to make it back to your camp before dark. Once it gets dark on Everest, and if you're still trying to find your way down, there's a very good chance you're not going to make it. Darkness, sub-zero temperatures, lack of oxygen, fatigue, and disorientation are potentially deadly factors. But if you add a storm into this region, a storm can mean a blizzard of 100-mile-an-hour winds and whiteout conditions. Tragedies can and do occur. The holdup near the summit of Everest is a spot called the Hillary Step. The Hillary Step is essentially the last barrier to the summit after several days of climbing. There's an issue with the Hillary Step, though. The step is a 40-foot-high section of nearly vertical rock. For average climbers at sea level, navigating the step would be a small warm-up climb. But at an elevation of 28,839 feet, the Hillary Step is more than 2,000 feet above the entry into what is known as the death zone. The death zone refers to the altitude in which the pressure of the oxygen is insufficient to sustain human life for an extended time. While in the death zone and without supplemental oxygen, you are, in effect, dying very, very slowly. So the physical side of the Hillary Step at that elevation is demanding. The mental side is just daunting. As you climb the 40-foot high rock wall, you can look to the right and see and feel the pull of a 10,000-foot drop. Okay, so you don't look in that direction. If you move your eyes to the left, and you'll see and feel the gravitational pull of an 8,000-foot drop. Traditionally, over the last several decades, fixed and secured ropes were attached to the top of the Hillary Step, and this meant you could use the fixed ropes to ascend the rock wall and not having to risk your life making it through this last final obstacle. On May 10th, there was an additional problem. The fixed lines were gone. They would have to be rehung, which meant someone would have to actually, with hands and feet, climb the rock wall and attach new ropes. And this would take some time. At 3 p.m. on May 10th, there was a long line of climbers still waiting to ascend the Hillary Step. They were well beyond the 2 p.m. curfew of standing on the summit with time for a safe return. But as you can imagine, after hiking several hundred miles, acclimatizing for 30 days at base camp, and now finally within 1,500 feet of the summit, it's a hard call to pack up and turn around and go home. Add cognitive impairment and decision-making becomes unreliable. It takes experienced people on the team to know that no matter what, you must turn around at 2 p.m. These are non-negotiable decisions. At 3 p.m., several Sherpas who had summited and were on their way back down came across a struggling climber. They'd advised him to turn back and with them go back down the mountain with them. He refused. A bit later, Rob Hall, a team leader, reached the Sherpas and the climber. He was a New Zealander and was working as a paid guide and was leading a team to the summit, which for him would have been his sixth time standing on the summit of Everest. Rob Hall was more than respected in the Himalayas. He was revered. The struggling climber was part of Hall's party of paid clients. When Rob Hall reached his client, he learned that the climber had used up all of his supplemental oxygen in both his main and auxiliary tanks. His refusal to turn around and descend with the Sherpas was a life-threatening decision. Hall instructed the Sherpas to continue to descend and to help any other climbers they found along the way. He would stay with the climber, whose health was deteriorating fast. At 5 p.m., one of the deadliest blizzards in climbing history hit the summit of Everest. 
The climber was now unconscious, and Hall had radioed a lower camp for help. His oxygen, too, was gone after sharing it with his climbing client. Andy Harris, a friend and colleague of Rob Hall, set out to bring his friend the oxygen that could save his life. Miraculously, Harris made it to Hall's location and delivered water and oxygen. Harris never made it back to camp. The climber who Rob Hall so bravely stayed with also died that night. At 4.30 a.m., Rob Hall radioed to camp. He was in trouble. The regulator on his oxygen tank had iced over and he couldn't get it to work. Without oxygen, the brain slowly dies. Decision-making is unreliable, and the effort to implement even a bad decision is nearly impossible. You might think you need to stand up, and 60 minutes later, you're still getting ready to stand up. At these elevations, you lose all relationship to time. Five hours later, Rob Hall was able to get his oxygen regulator working, but the elements had taken their toll, and he was losing his battle with the cold. His hands and feet were frozen, frostbitten, unusable. With dead and frozen hands, he couldn't manipulate or navigate the nearby fixed ropes. A few hours later, he radioed camp one more time. He asked if they could use the satellite phone to connect to his wife in New Zealand. He knew, as did his wife, that there was nothing anyone could do for him. Over the radio to his wife, who was pregnant with their first child, he said, Sleep well, my sweetheart. Please don't worry too much. The radio crackled into silence. Rob Hall was gone. Twelve climbers died that day on Everest, May 10, 1996. Sixty-two years earlier, Maurice Wilson was going to navigate this same route in the same conditions. The concept of a 2 p.m. climbing curfew or turnaround time were not even a theory at this point. Maurice would have to climb the 40-foot Hillary step without fixed ropes, but with the 10,000-foot drop on one side and the 8,000-foot drop on the other. He would be in the death zone in silk-lined sweaters and cork boots, and he'd be there alone. My name is Jeff Bargeman, and this is the High Adventure Podcast. Hello and welcome to Episode 8 of Season 2 of the High Adventure Podcast. If you're new to the season, you might want to go back and catch up by listening to the previous episodes. If you're new to the High Adventure Podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to Season 1, where we drill down into the story of the 1977 Yosemite pot plane crash, where a plane carrying 600 pounds of smuggled marijuana crashed into a frozen lake in the Yosemite backcountry. If you've never heard that story, I encourage you to listen to that one. It's a wild one. Thank you all for passing our podcast out to your friends. As you know, we don't have advertisers. I do tell you about my films and where to find them, and I tell you something about our social media and web presence, but I don't hit you up with a plea for my Patreon site or my PayPal site, and I don't have any content behind a paywall. I'm just telling stories. And if you like them, all I ask is you leave me some reviews on your favorite podcast platform. And if you share this podcast with a couple of friends, that's terrific. 
because I don't have a huge network behind me, it's just me sitting here in my little studio trying to do some research, write these podcasts, and get them out to you. So sometimes it takes a while, and my consistency with episodes admittedly is not great. Um, but it's because I don't have that support. I have other ways I have to make a living, and this is just one of the things I like to do. So I'm happy and grateful that you stay with me during these large gaps between these episodes. And this episode and this series is coming to an end. There'll be one more episode after this one that wraps up this story. So I want to make sure we try to get this out to as many people as we can. Our listeners around the world are growing, and last week we picked up listeners in some new countries. I want to say hello to our listeners in Hong Kong, in Bulgaria, in Greece, in Finland, in Iceland, down in South Africa, in Israel, in Puerto Rico, in Serbia, in Ukraine. And I'm going to try a little experiment. Send me a Facebook, Instagram, a tweet, or an email, and tell me how you found out about this podcast. And I'll mention you and your country on the next episode. So if you want the world to hear your name, Maybe even it's not your real name, but send me a message and uh, I'll give you a shout out next time. You can reach me at the High Adventure Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at High Adventure Podcast, on Facebook at the High Adventure Podcast, and on Instagram at High Adventure Podcast. And Though I do push some of this social media stuff, I haven't been great at pushing it all out there. And I'm, uh, you know, Facebook, I'm okay at Twitter. I kind of don't spend a lot of time on and Instagram. I'm completely devoid of any skills, but I'm going to work on that here. We also post these episodes on both our YouTube and Vimeo channels. And both these channels are under our company name of Accidental Productions. So here's my commercial. If you're trapped indoors and looking for something to watch, take a look at Assault on El Capitan. It's our film about the second ascent of Wings of Steel, and that's Yosemite's most controversial climb. It took 29 years for the second ascent to be attempted, and now it's been several years since anyone has been up there, and no one seems to be wanting to try it. We've seen films like The Dawn Wall, and we've seen films like Free Solo, and there's a lot of climbing films out there. There's some amazing climbers out there, bold, death-defying, put everything on the line. None of them, not one of them even mentions talking about going to try to climb Wings of Steel. There's only been four people that have been to the top of that, two teams. Um, if you want to find out about that particular climb, it is a piece of history and it is a piece of controversy that is well documented, and this film has done very well, and, you know, frankly, we're proud of it. And uh, it's it's a climbing film that is not about climbing, ironically. It's a climbing film about people who do what they do. And if there's anything that can be categorized about my style of, of filmmaking or of podcasting, it's not really what people do that interests me. It's why they do it. I'm really interested in why Maurice wants to go to the top of this mountain. I'm really interested in why Mallory wanted to be the first on top. Doing it is fine. Lots of people have that dream. But taking the next step and pushing yourself, why, why, why are you doing that? 
The film Assault on El Capitan is available on streaming sites everywhere, including for free on Amazon Prime if you're a subscriber. We've also just retooled and relaunched our website, accidentalproductions.net. Take a look and tell us what you think. There's a lot of content on there. There's our old web series, El Cap Bridge. There's uh, these podcasts live on there. So there, there's a lot of content you can find right on our website, and we encourage you to go take a look and reach out to us. In the previous episode, Maurice has made his way to India, but only after being detained and having his plane impounded and forced to pay for security of his own plane. He ran out of money and he was forced to sell the Everest and he had to come up with a new plan. The authorities in India, Nepal and England hoped the next plan Maurice had was to go home. The new plan has nothing to do with going home as Maurice makes his way to Darjeeling and the gateway to the Himalayas and Everest. With the authorities monitoring his every move, Maurice decides to find a couple discreet Sherpas to help him make the 300-mile walk to Everest and be able to begin his climb. From a small hotel room in Darjeeling, Maurice began to plan his one-man expedition for the coming spring. It was now obvious to Maurice that government authorities would give him neither advice, help, or even permission to continue on his journey and ultimately his quest. It seemed as though the sun never did set on the British Empire, and the long arm of British oppression certainly was being set upon Maurice Wilson. Far from assisting one of their citizens in a foreign land, the British government was actively working with foreign governments to inhibit and, if necessary, detain a British citizen who has not in any stretch of the imagination broken any laws. He simply has asked for some logistical help and permission to travel. These were permissions that were routinely granted to others, but none of the others had a goal of climbing the world's highest mountain and potentially embarrassing the entire British and perhaps world's experienced mountaineering community. Having been refused entry into Nepal, Maurice petitioned both India and London for permission to travel through the independent but protected state of Sikkim that was the gateway to Tibet. Maurice emphasized that his travel would be on foot. Remember, he had been refused to fly into these countries, so emphasizing that he was going to be on foot, he thought might make it a little easier, but he was quickly refused by India, England, Sikkim, and Tibet. Having attempted in all legal ways to enter both Nepal and Tibet, Maurice was now making preparations to secretly enter Tibet. If you're keeping score, this was going to be the first time Maurice had violated orders, permissions, or laws, or however you would like to categorize his subversion of the authorities. Again, he was not a wanted criminal. He was not a smuggler. He had no political agenda. He was just a World War I hero who wants to trek through the Himalayas and climb a mountain. Somehow Maurice has become an outlaw in the eyes of the British government, and they in turn have spread that belief to the countries that Maurice has passed through. And ironically, or, or not, they're all countries that the British government had large amounts of control over. In Darjeeling, Maurice spent a good amount of time in what was called the Planters Club. The Planters Club served as a recruitment center for British teams of climbers looking to employ Sherpas for climbing expeditions. Maurice would hang around the club looking for people who came back from the Everest region, he would gather every piece of information he could without raising too many red flags about his own plans. He often sat for hours in a basket chair on the porch of the Planters Club and 
stare off past the lines of Buddhist prayer flags at the snow-capped mountains in the distance. The irony should not be lost that Maurice was sitting in a club surrounded by mountaineering culture, whose only mandate is to help British mountaineers secure Sherpas for their travel. But he's unable to take advantage of this benefit. He knows that if he makes any move toward his goal, he risks arrest. Friends send him letters and messages begging him to abandon his trip and to come home. After all the obstacles Maurice has faced, his friends are now also convinced that this trip may be too dangerous. Though they were not given any of the details of Maurice's new plans, they were right. Traveling through lands that were specifically prohibited from traveling could add danger to the trek that even Maurice may not be prepared for. These early British expeditions used Sherpas as their main source of support. They nicknamed the Sherpas Tigers of the Snow. It was their way of trying to show respect, but a better demonstration of respect might have been a reasonable wage and the same living conditions as the climbers, but social evolution takes time, and that evolution had not begun in the 1930s. In 1928, the British set up the Himalayan Club with branches in Bombay, Calcutta, and Darjeeling. The aim of the Himalayan Club was to promote knowledge about the Himalayas and publish maps and descriptions of routes, and to formalize the recruiting of Sherpas, porters, and guides. The Himalayan club secretary oversaw the choice of teams and negotiated wages with the expedition leaders. Maurice certainly could have benefited from the support of such a group, but he knew that if he'd approached the Himalayan club that news of his secret travel plans would leak out and he might be faced with further detainment or even extradition back to England. It was about this time that Maurice met Karma Paul. Karma Paul was a highly educated Tibetan who spoke seven languages and had been part of the 1922 and 1924 Everest expeditions, and he served as an interpreter for the 1933 expedition. After lengthy discussions about the various approaches to Everest, Maurice invited Karma Paul to join him on his trek, but the climbing would be solely done by Maurice. Karma Paul was free with his information and advice, but ultimately the two went their separate ways. Karma Paul, like others, advised against Maurice's plan, saying that he thought it was much too dangerous. The climbing was only part of the danger. The secret travel that would have involved traveling only by night and avoiding not only government officials, but trail bandits, was more than Karma Paul was willing to risk. The parting was mutual, but the plan was taking shape. Maurice kept in shape by taking long walks across the countryside and through the city. He was aware that he was constantly watched by the police. Maurice was once allowed to join a small trekking party into the Sakim foothills. During this trek, the police searched his rooms and his belongings, while another policeman followed close by and watched the trekking group to ensure Maurice was with them and stayed with them. Maurice was clear on what was happening and being done to stop him from continuing. His plan was to leave in March of 1934. He had now been in Darjeeling for months and months preparing his travel and his climbing plan and to try to get to Everest in May for the best chance to summit. On January 15, 1934, an earthquake with a magnitude of 8.0 rocked the region. Parts of India, Tibet, Nepal were all heavily damaged. Between 10 and 12,000 people reportedly died in that quake. Maurice once again showed his humanity and his heroism when 
With only one good arm, he worked tirelessly along locals to dig through the rubble to rescue and carry injured survivors to many makeshift medical camps. It was during this time that Maurice met the team of Sherpas that would guide him from Darjeeling to Everest. Terzing, Rinzing, and Twang were all experienced Sherpas. All three had been on the Rutledge expedition. It's likely that Karmapal made the introductions. Twang's occupation was listed as servant of Karmapal, while Terzing and Rinzing were listed as rickshawwallers or drivers. The Sherpas, having all worked together on previous expeditions, told Maurice that they would like, if possible, to all stay together. So Maurice hired them all. This probably had as much to do with secrecy than anything else. Had he decided to hire only one or two of them, then the other ones would be out there potentially revealing his plans, and that would have created yet more obstacles and would have most likely resulted in his arrest and possibly be deportation back to England. With his plans in place and a team of support personnel and a newly purchased pony to carry the luggage, it was time to leave India and head into the mountains. Maurice was grateful for the help at this point of his trip, and his goal was for the three Sherpas to guide him to the base of Everest, or at least help him get his provisions to the Wrongbook Monastery. As the crow flies, it's roughly 120 miles from Darjeeling to Rongbuk and the foothills around Everest. At the time, expeditions were forced to go north to avoid Nepal. The trekking and trade routes followed a long, circuitous route that tripled the mileage from Darjeeling to Rongbuk. Maurice decided on an even more obscure route. He was, after all, being watched and followed throughout his time in Darjeeling, so finding a way out of town was going to be no simple afternoon stroll. Instead of following the usual expedition route, or what they called the Mule and Yak Highway, Maurice opted for the quieter but more difficult and direct route along the Tista River and over the Kongra Pass into Tibet. The 300-mile route would take him past some of the highest mountains in the Himalayan range. Maurice and his Sherpa team began to plan the route and sometimes through questionable means acquired a vast collection of maps that covered all the approaches to Everest. He most likely secreted maps from the Himalayan club and through his Sherpa team acquired maps from their friends and those friends had helped make maps from previous trips to Everest. Maurice and the Sherpas poured over the maps hour after hour. They studied the route and committed it to memory, so they would, if necessary, be able to find their way in the dark, which would in fact come in handy as they traveled mostly by night to avoid the attention and the discovery. The route they chose traveled mostly over the windswept Tibetan plateau. This route would certainly tax his endurance and his commitment. Maurice wrote, quote, I might have to swim a couple of big rivers to dodge the police. He then said, it would just be too humorous to be returned to Darjeeling under police escort. Maurice now was traveling as an outlaw, as if he were in fact a fugitive. The police were monitoring his every move. When he bought a pony to bring along to carry his supplies, the police stopped him and asked him why he'd bought the pony. He told them that he was going on a tiger hunt. To further cover his tracks, he paid his rent on his room for six months in advance. Next up was his disguise. 
Maurice was at this point both famous and infamous. It wasn't going to be easy to travel 300 miles unrecognized. It wasn't just the authorities he needed to evade. It was the common trekker or the traveler. Pictures and interviews with Maurice had been in newspapers for over a year. Add to that the expedition recon community who were being aided by the Himalayan Club and their desire to be the first to climb Everest. With the Himalayan Club, who was essentially an arm of the British government, aiding all who came through with what they considered proper permissions, any sign of Maurice would have been reported back to the club and then to the Indian government and on to the British, the Nepalese, and the Tibetan governments. This was true secret agent stuff, with the spy being self-financed, self-sufficient, and self-motivated. That's a powerful combination. Standing in the way of an adventure athlete that has his heart and mind set on an achievement is like trying to stop waves from coming up on the beach. Maurice had the Sherpas help him with this disguise, and they jumped in with both feet, feeling this was part of the adventure that they'd signed up for. They gathered a wide variety of garments, and Maurice did some testing of the disguise. For several days, Maurice paraded all over Darjeeling, unnoticed and unrecognized in his new clothes. His outfits were impressive. The Sherpas dressed him in a fur-lined hat with ear flaps and in what Maurice called a magnificent waistcoat that was brocaded in gold with huge brass buttons. His pants were dark blue cotton and wrapped around his middle with a 12-foot bright red pure satin sash. Covering it all, he wore a heavy wool mantle that hung to his feet. This mantle, as they called it, was more of a loose cape than an overcoat. The only thing Maurice insisted on keeping was his cork-insulated boots and he wore dark glasses to cover his very distinguishable blue-gray eyes. His mountaineering and flying kits were packed into two 30-pound packs, which the Sherpas easily carried until it was safe for Maurice to shed his disguise. Maurice Wilson was setting off on the next phase of his adventure. The focus on Maurice has always been on Everest and his solo attempt and the life-ending dangers that that entails. But let's not forget the preparation and the flight he'd made to get to this point that he's now standing on at this moment in history. How many would have persevered through what he endured? Can I confidently say not many? Maurice was willing to sacrifice everything for an ideal. Is death too high a price to pay for an ideal? That's where it gets complicated. People routinely talk about what they would be willing to die for. Most people say they would die for their family. That's understandable. Family is real and a tangible thing. It's a physical and emotional connection. Others say they would die for their country. Dying for a country is absolutely willing to die for an ideal. A country is nothing more than a collection of ideals that we inherit and, for the most part, come to believe in. Are you really willing to die for something someone long ago created and that you were told your whole life was the right way to live? Are the ideals we inherit different from the people we are fighting against? And if they are truly different, are they better? Can you measure ideals as better or worse? I suspect fewer people are willing to die for their country than claim they would. 
Maurice proved over his life that he was willing to sacrifice and die for both his country and his ideals. Maurice's choices of what he was willing to die for could be questioned, I suppose, but not his preparation. He came up with a plan and made every preparation he could to be successful. It's always easy to look back and say, that guy was crazy. But crazy by whose standards? The standards of a person in the 21st century looking back almost a 100 years and judging by the standards of today's equipment and information? Yeah, maybe you would say that was crazy. If Maurice would have succeeded, he would have won the admiration of the entire world forever. He would have inspired countless adventurers for generations. He would have been without question in today's description an influencer. In his last letter home to England, Maurice wrote, Man proposes and God disposes, though in my case I think he did both. I have the distinct feeling in knowing that I shall return, though if things turn out otherwise, I have at least had a kick out of life. And if I had my life to live over again, I wouldn't wish it any other way. Now that's a bold statement of a man who's demonstrating gratitude. Again, he's lost the use of his left arm in battle. He's traveled around the world and had failed relationships, but successful businesses. He's had a difficult time socially. He found his way. He found his purpose with Everest and with the flying and the preparation. And now, after all of this, the sum of his entire life, he finds that those pieces put together make his life whole and that he wouldn't do it any other way. Maurice adds no caveat to his statement about his life. He did lose his arm in World War I, but doesn't say it's been a great life except for that one thing. He takes life as a whole, not broken up into the good and the bad bits. That's today what we call badass. In the very early morning of March 21, 1934, two months before Bonnie and Clyde were killed and six months before Bridget Bardot was born and Babe Ruth retired, Maurice Wilson, disguised as a Tibetan priest, slipped quietly out of Darjeeling on the last stage of his journey that would either make him famous or kill him. On the night before he left, a trusted friend who knew Maurice's plan sewed up his kit bags and disguised them as bags of wheat. The Sherpas left the city separately and well in advance of Maurice to further lessen the chance of being spotted. They had arranged to meet in a forest some 20 miles beyond the city. As dawn broke, Maurice was on the edge of the city when he saw a policeman coming his way. It was too late to hide, so Maurice opened his umbrella and, with a silent nod and a smile, passed the policeman unrecognized. Another test passed, and that fueled Maurice's confidence. Choosing a harder and more obscure route than the previous expeditions to Everest, Maurice gained more and more confidence that his plan would succeed and that he wouldn't be discovered while on this section of his trip. 
The plan was to travel by night to avoid any interaction with other people on the trail and with any authorities that had all been briefed on Maurice's goals. The decision to travel at night proved correct when on the first night and a little before midnight, Maurice and his team ran into a police patrol. Not yet completely trusting of his disguise, Maurice jumped into a deep ditch that ran alongside the trail. He found out quickly and surprisingly that the ditch was half full of water. When it was safe, he climbed out of the ditch, and according to a report by the Sherpas later, he, he came out using language that, quote, far from priest-like. This was quickly becoming an adventure all its own. At various times while passing through villages, Maurice would stay hidden outside of the village while the Sherpas went into town to purchase supplies. To reinforce the myth, the Sherpas told the villagers that they were traveling with a very sickly deaf and dumb priest. Not exactly a term we'd use today, but it was 1934. They had covered all the bases with a simple cover story. They were traveling with a man who would not communicate with anyone who tried. And he was also sickly. Being sickly was probably enough. In 1934, in the Himalayas, locals were susceptible to illness and disease, and the best way to stay healthy was to leave sick people alone and keep them at a distance. Sound familiar? So Maurice's cover story was simple and brilliant. In a couple days, they hiked from an elevation of 5,000 feet to 12,000 feet, the path becoming steeper and more unforgiving. On March 24th, the team covered 16 miles in six and a half hours, all while traveling in the dark. That's about two and a half miles an hour. If you're in a car, that's nothing. You would drive that for a really good pizza. And if you were out for a day hike, again, you could hike this pace fairly easily. But if you're hiking at night with a pack animal and three other people all carrying loads, knowing you're going to do these same things day after day for 300 miles and in cork line boots, now that's a different kind of activity. On this particular night in March, the pony lost its footing and slipped to the edge of a 500-foot drop. Later, they were forced to cross an ice-cold river as the water swirled up around their shoulder level. Then they were hit by a small sleet blizzard while navigating a pass. The once skeptical Sherpas were now sure of Maurice's commitment, but now questioning his mental competence. Maurice seemed to thrive on the discomfort. He wrote after those particularly difficult nights, Party marvelous. Couldn't wish for better. All very happy. He also wrote of the houses they passed along the way, quote, the houses had lights burning in the window all night to keep away the spirits. It seems ironic that villagers were trying to keep spirits away while just outside and passing by in the dark, an Englishman was welcoming and embracing his demons. Continuing to travel only by night, Maurice spent his days off the path in a tent to remain hidden as long as he possibly could. Remember, it's not paranoia if they really are after you. But as the days and nights wore on, they saw fewer and fewer travelers. Moving farther through the mountains, they passed through nearly empty villages. Most people who live at these elevations moved to the lowlands during the winter months, and as Maurice and his team traveled through, these villagers hadn't yet returned for the summer. Moving forward, the sparse population allowed Maurice and his team to start traveling by day without any fear of being recognized or caught. 
If a passing traveler was seen, Maurice moved off the trail and covered himself. He lay down and pretended to be asleep. But as they crossed into Tibet, this became less and less of an issue, and the group began moving more freely. Maurice was thrilled when they finally reached Tibet and thought about sending a message to the British government that said, Now in Tibet, told you so. Wisely, he changed his mind. During this time, Maurice wrote in his diary something that he should have taken a little more seriously because the future was going to be a lot more of the same. He wrote that it took over an hour for the tea water to boil and the night before the temperatures had dropped to minus 34 degrees. At this point, Maurice and his small group were feeling confident and secure. They traveled by day and Maurice traveled without his disguise. On the first day of entering Tibet, Maurice and crew traveled nearly 30 miles over a 17,000-foot pass. The next day, they covered another 28 miles. Maurice was starting to suffer, though. The high altitude and the pace of the trek were starting to take their toll. Those long walks through the British countryside and long walks through the Indian countryside were not necessarily the training regiment necessary for what he was taking on. By April 1st, things were getting tough. Maurice's pace was slowing, and he was not adjusting to the altitude. His eyes and head throbbed with pain. Even the pony was suffering with sores and was clearly worn out. The Sherpas, on the other hand, were doing just fine. While Maurice and the pony rested that April Sunday, the Sherpas bought, butchered, and cooked a goat and restocked their supplies from a nearby village. April 1st and 2nd were rest days for Maurice and the pony. Before they set out, Maurice wrote in his diary, Time flying. Should be at Everest in 10 or 12 days. On April 3rd, they were up at dawn and on their way once again. The Sherpas ate chili peppers to alleviate headaches. I have no idea about the chemistry around this or if it was simply a placebo, but in my mind, if people born and raised in this region say chilies will help with brain-melting headaches, I think I'm going to eat a chili. Not Maurice. Contrary to his diary entries where he often describes the head-splitting pain, he refused to eat the chilies and said to the Sherpas, Headache? I haven't noticed one myself. On April 9th, after days of crossing passes, fording ice rivers, and being hit by blizzards, Maurice wrote, Time is flying now. Cannot speak much to the Sherpas. Just as well. I'm used to my own company. On April 12, 1934, Maurice finally got his first look at Everest. He wrote, Saw Everest this morning from 17,000-foot ridge. Two nights from now shall be at Rongbuk, where I hope to fast for a couple days to get ready for the big climb. I'm already planning for the future event. I must win. Maurice's confidence and faith are still strong, and he's envisioning what life will be like for him after he summits Everest. We all like to envision what our life will be like after a big event and think that if I could just finish this or just do this, whatever this is, is the thing that will change us forever and then we'll all be happy, or at least I will be happy. We all do it. We all look ahead beyond the experience and believe the result will become the defining thing. But as we've heard from previous adventure athletes, it's not the summit or the finish line or whatever you're seeking. It is the journey. And I know that's a cliche, but it is the journey that changes you. Maurice has at this point accomplished what most people could never imagine. But 
the planning and journey to him are inconsequential if the ultimate goal is not reached. That's letting expectations dictate success. Expectations are educated guesses. You think something will happen because your experience says that it has happened in the past. If that specific experience is not yours, you're making expectations based on someone else's experience. So if I'm playing basketball and I shoot a three-point shot, my expectation of that shot going in should be based on my skill and experience of shooting three-point shots. But if I shoot a three-point shot and expect to make the shot because I've seen Stephen Curry shoot three-pointers and I expect my shot to go in because of Stephen Curry's experience and skill, then I think I've lost a bit of perspective and self-awareness. On April 13, 1934, Maurice and his Sherpa team woke up at the base of Shell Karzong. Parts of Shell Karzong were built in 1269. It's been said that if Western geographers had known of Shell Karzong, it would have ranked as one of the seven wonders of the world. Shell Karzong translates to mean Fortress of Shining Glass. The name is unusually descriptive of the place. The village of white-stoned houses lie in clusters around a base of a towering mass of rock. Halfway up the rock are narrow winding ledges and the white glistening walls that lead to the Zong Monastery that's perched on the highest pinnacle of the rock formation and more than a thousand feet above the surrounding plains. Those who have visited the monastery without hesitation said the views were without question the most magnificent in the world. Visitors talked about the ethereal quality of the place and described it as a fairy tale like and enchanted. Those are lofty descriptions and sadly we have to rely on historical descriptions. The monastery and surrounding areas were nearly all destroyed by the Red Guards during the Chinese Cultural Revolution of 1966. Two days and 37 miles of walking, the valley narrowed and the thin grass disappeared as the hills started to close in around them. The ice-chilled south winds coming straight off the snows of Everest hit their faces with a stinging accuracy. That night, an unbearable cold came with the darkness. It's hard for a person to brave and endure that type of cold when you're traveling alone. In a group, you can gain strength from the others in the team, because no one wants to be the first to say that it's too cold to continue. In the case of Maurice, I don't think it was a question of who would be the first so much as that stopping or giving up was never going to ever be an option. One more night, and the Rongbuk Glacier and the slopes of Everest would be visible. Unbelievably, after a year, and all Maurice had been through, the mountain was just sitting there, like it had for millions of years, sitting there for him to take the first steps on the summit, to set a footprint that literally and figuratively might never be erased. In our next episode, Maurice is going to take those first steps towards the summit. He's going to set off to realize a dream that at any moment could become a nightmare, and a nightmare that is so real that it could not only end his journey, 
but end his life. I'm just like my old man, he told me so. Lying on his deathbed watching the picture show. The product of the night, the bottle and some smoke. A boomer's tricks and a woman's